Hello and welcome to episode four of The Wine List, which I hope you remember is a podcast for those of us who like a glass of wine, but have at times been rather intimidated when faced with a wine list in a restaurant or indeed being asked, hmm, what kind of wine do you like? I'm playing that part and playing the part of the gentleman who's going to navigate through all the complexities of knowing about wine is my very well qualified uh, friend of 30 years, Mr. Richard Lane. Good evening, Richard. Good evening, Oliver Turnbull. Are you OK, my fine fellow? All good, old. Very excited. Episode four. We're cracking along nicely. Every ep slightly different. And as just repeated, it's not a wine course, this, but there's a little bit of education going on, building your knowledge up uh, all ep by ep. It's helping already, you know. I um, got a wine list at the weekend and I perused it. I knew maybe a third of the wines from the conversations we've had. Uh, and I was able to make, I think, what was an informed choice. And uh, it was quite quite decent in the end and kind of went with the food so i was i was quite pleased so uh, yeah we'll we'll come to the name of this episode in a in a minute but uh, there were some things that we talked about in um, episode three you gave me a bit of homework didn't you well i did all and i detected slightly that you were a bit concerned about the concept of aging uh, i assume you meant aging well, yes. of wine rather than our <laughs> middle-aged middle-class male <laughs> aging that uh, you know we're flourishing off we're in our 50s we're absolutely on top form we can't cover wine aging right now because it's a big topic it's a complex topic but what was your main concern i was trying to work out whether uh, you you know when when people talk about wines and they talk about uh, a 94 or a 2001 or whatever there's a sort of implication that the older the better and, I, and i'm assuming that that's within limits and within wines in other words there is a limit to um, how good a wine will get the more you age it and that also is constraints as to which wines you would lay down in order to take advantage of that aging so it was those two factors that i uh, they're not exactly in conflict but i didn't quite understand how they coexist together yeah and again you've just sort of neatly underlined the complexity of the topic i think i'm going to sort of duck it slightly and and, and say that the vast majority of wines are not intended for aging they're not going to get better from aging a lot of wines hold so they'll stay good for often maybe three or four years or something maybe like that Cote Drone last time it was absolutely fine it hadn't improved in four years I'm sure it would have been exactly the same it was lovely and simple and fresh if you remember and lovely red fruit so holding is one thing but actually improving as a result of bottle aging is pretty rare for wines to be able to do that They've got to be of fabulous quality. You just very briefly, you need a couple of essential components. You need really ripe, concentrated fruit. So the quality of the fruit, the grapes, the viticulture has produced just amazing fruit. You also need generally a decent amount of acidity because acidity acts as a preservative to help wines age. And in red wines, tannins that you get from the skins, and we'll cover this in our winemaking app, red wines have tannins because you have contact with the skins during the winemaking process in red wines, whereas generally you don't with white wines. But in red wines, those tannins, those things that can be really aggressive and dry your gums out when the wines are young, can actually really soften with aging, with time actually. And and so as a result of aging to do with kind of fresh fruits in red wines becoming slightly sort of more dried fruits, more complex, combined with high acidity and the softening of tannins, you can get amazing wines that evolve over time, 10, 20, 30 years. But in the grand scheme of things, 
those wines are, are very much in the minority. The majority of wines are for pretty much everyday drinking. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things in there, a lot of things to it. We'll come back to tannin like you say. I'm going to just starting to be aware of that. And just a little bit of feedback from EP3. People asking, loving the wines, but we're not talking about food much. And of course, these days, wine isn't really discussed. I mean, we mentioned food very briefly, of course. We're talking about a wine list. We're in a restaurant. We're going to be eating, aren't we, and choosing our wines from our wine list. I deliberately wanted us and want us to focus on the business of wines, not at the exclusion of food. And food we will certainly introduce in terms of food pairing and food matching as this series progresses. And we're going to have a real bumper ep later on in the series where we're going to really examine food matching and food pairing. But I don't want us to get hung up like the English, particularly the British, seem to be at the moment about constantly pairing food and wine. I want us to really get to understand, for you to get to understand, the nuts and bolts of the business of wine. So let's crack on with episode four. Got it. Yeah, okay. You're quite right. I have this chart which shows which wines go with which, and I find it a little bit restricting, really. And I'm sure it's a bit dull sometimes as well. It's a bit tedious. It's a bit dull, and it just and it's part. It's just part of this slightly quotes perfect society that we all live in now, where we're supposed to have the answer to everything, and we can look it up on our phones, and it's just like there's a solution just everywhere for every kind of a scenario. (laughs) That just isn't. Don't worry about it. Just enjoy it. Crack on. Be creative. I love it. That's very sort of French way of thinking, which I which I actually quite like. I mean, I, yeah, logical Anglo-Saxon. I'm pulled towards rules and give me a spreadsheet which tells me which wine. But you are absolutely right. The artist in you, and you have a scientific and artistic part of you, particularly you, which is a lovely balance. But the artist in you, is you're, you're quite right. Say what feels good. Right. Episode four. Do you want to reveal the name of the episode and why? Well, yes. I mean, obviously, every episode from now on has to relate to music so I can get my violin out at some point. Oh, the violin's coming out. Splendid. This episode is about wine history. Episode four, wine history, is entitled Georgia on my mind. And that's probably not the only musical interlude that uh, we'll hear on this. Georgia on my mind. Right. Beautiful pun. Beautiful song. We'll talk about the significance of Georgia in a sec, but I suppose we should mention the wines that we're going to be tasting tonight uh, fairly soon as well. Absolutely. I want to introduce the wines and also our kind of prop, our guide for this episode. Let's talk about the wines first. We're tasting two wines, not the mighty four that we had last time. And we are also going to be tasting our red wine as our number one wine, our first wine, and later on our white wine. All our wines in the Winelist podcast come from the Wine Society. We are tasting two wines, as I said, both are from 2019, so they're pretty young. We're tasting a, a Greek red wine called, the grape variety is called Gino Mavro, quite a trendy grape from northern Greece. This links into, obviously, to our history. And it's made by a producer called Timiopoulos, who's a top producer in Greece and doing very well for himself. £11.50, 13% alcohol. And later on, we'll be tasting a Riesling from Germany. It's called a, a Spätlaser. We'll explain that later on. So it's a medium sweet Riesling, quite north, actually, in Germany. It's just crossing the 50 degrees help line. Again, linked to history because Riesling is very historic, as, of course, is Greece and Greek Greek culture and wine because we're talking about history in this week's ep and very much a guide is uh, the um, flamboyant wine critic and um, bon vivant Mr Oz Clark I met him once and he is quite flamboyant he's a terrific writer but the books that is guiding us during this uh, ep is his recentish book which is called The History of Wine in 100 Bottles so I want to say straight away I am no wine historian I'm not a historian at all really but a lot of the ideas and things we're discussing are linked 
link directly from Oz Clark's book. So I want to reference that and I do recommend people read it. It's a fabulous read and it's very funny as well. Lovely. I love the label, by the way. The label on the Greek is really nice. Oldie worldy, slightly faded and sort of old fashioned print uh, fonts all over the place and some handwritten stuff as well. It's very, very nice. Very sort of Greek and casual. And the um, the German is very sort of very, very, very German, very exact, precise, neat. Um, and again, equally pleasant on the eye. I've got both my wines poured out now. Rich, I'm ready to go. Uh, good name check of Oz Clark. Uh, sounds like a great book. I haven't read it yet because I'm learning everything from you at the moment. Exactly. So where did it all begin? Well, this is the big question. And this is uh, what Mr. Clark discusses early on in his book. The point is, we don't know when... <laughs> Suddenly, all right good you... night thank you <laughs> see you for episode five cheers up <laughs> i mean let's put it another way grapes have been growing far far longer than wine culture human wine culture has existed let's say 6000 bc possibly 8000 years ago there is some evidence that was there was some kind of wine culture going on in the area that is now around the area of sort of northern iran azerbaijan eastern turkey and georgia Ah, I get it. Yeah. In Georgia, there was very much, there was a society there, a kind of culture of wine, of wine festivals. And, you know, again, the history proves it. They came up with this word called vin, G-V-I-N. Huh? So that word obviously predates all the stuff that followed from the Greeks and the Romans and everything else. So I think it's a reasonable assumption to say that actually I think it was probably the guys in Georgia and the Caucasus and, you know, sort of southwest Russia sort of area that got this whole wine gig on the road possibly as long ago as 8,000 years ago. Wow. When we say this wine gig, uh, as you call it, it's more than just squishing juice and realising there's delicious liquid in there. I suppose that you're inferring that there is some kind of fermentation and therefore there is some kind of alcohol. Therefore, there is some kind of pleasant feeling that you get apart from the taste. Is that what we're saying or are we just saying Ribena effectively? Oh, no, 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 absolutely. We are talking about the process by which juice from grapes becomes alcohol. And it's important to remember that even though it took, it wasn't until the 1860s when Louis Pasteur actually chemically documented the formula that goes on here, even way back thousands of years ago, if you have grapes, let's say you get a load of grapes and you store them or you want to keep them, there are naturally occurring yeasts that sit on the skins of grapes. If those grape skins split, then fermentation is going to start straight away. The yeast, because the process of fermentation is yeast, consume the sugar in the juice and they convert that sugar to alcohol and carbon dioxide and heat. That is basically what fermentation is. And that can happen completely spontaneously. And I would say there's a pretty good bet that people didn't sit around one day saying, hmm, let's because they probably didn't know what yeast was. <laughs> they certainly didn't know what mm. fermentation was. I suspect it all happened by days, one yeah. lovely, happy accident. And people suddenly found, oh, those grapes I put away in, in, a, in a jug 
uh, what's happened to them? Oh, that something seems to have happened to them. Oh, golly, what a p- funny smell. And I mean, one mythical thing says apparently there was some figure, I think it might have been a woman who was so fed up with her lot and her husband and uh, all his wives that she decided to try and take her own life by sipping what she presumed was going to be poisoned, what had happened to these grapes. And she ended up having a wild old time and feeling re- rejuvenated. Of course, this Excellent. is all folklore, this sort of thing. But you can see how you know it came along. And going back to the Georgians, I mean, they did actually have a Gavin festival you know, in, in October, i.e. the time at which the grapes would be right. So clearly something was going on. Yeah, Georgia is definitely on my mind. Just quickly, going back to the old um, requirement for yeast and, and it, it potentially occurring naturally, presumably the process of making wine these days, you have to inject the yeast artificially and under great control rather than just hoping that there's yeast available on the skins, right? Well, yes. Again, great question. I mean, that's that's how the safest fermentations go on now. But there's very much a, a trending natural wine movement at the moment. And yeah. because yeasts, as I said, they occur naturally, even in even modern day wineries, you'll find yeast on the on the surface of grapes. Some producers actually want to use wild yeast rather than kind of cultured yeasts. And, and some wine is made that way. Often it's a bit of a compromise. You can start the fermentation process off using the natural yeasts on the skins of the grapes and then you buy in some kind of clinical yeast to finish it off. Right. <laughs> I, I quite like that idea. It's funny, funny isn't it? It's like, oh, hey, tell you what, so this thing that's delicious, why do we try and make it the way they did it 2,000 years ago? Well, no, because there's been 2,000 years of R&D since then. Um, but I'm sure it's not as simple as that. And there are some advantages of... Um, it's like people say, I'm going to make a, I'm, uh, this canoe was made uh, in the in the way that the uh, prehistoric uh, people used to make canoes. And I'm going to, I'll have that fiberglass one, please, to go down this roaring river. Anywho. Fantastic. And it's not such a big leap, actually, of, and, and I think we should actually, um, in a set, well, let's do it now. I think we need to, we've got to remember, we are improving your palate, hopefully, through each app. It's not a huge leap from, from the Georgians to, to, to the Greeks. I mean, we're, uh-huh. skipping, we're skipping over Phoenicians slightly and the Egyptians. By the time the Greek civilization came along, we're sort of talking 4th century BC. This is when wine culture really started to develop. And I think, let's just pause for a second because I want you to have a little sip of your of the first right. wine. I'm going to do it. So it's the red. As I poured it a few minutes ago, you might have heard, actually. It's that lovely, well, it's a red wine, obviously, but it's a lovely red colour, as in sort of classic red quite pale so not like i was going to ask you all if it if it's pale because because gina mavro is a paler paler color so i am told would would so would you say is it paler than the 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 the, the, um coat de last week yeah oh definitely and and redder it's Mm. that lovely red color that i really like um so that's rather nice i'm going to do me old swirling which i'm getting better at yeah good ma'am wow it smells very different to the Cote de Rome. Yes. I want, uh, and this is, again, another reason why I chose this wine not because it's, it's, again, a bit like that Cabernet Franc. It's quite aromatic. Oh, it really is. I like it. Isn't it lovely? It really nice, really different. It, it yeah. smells of a different fruit. What is Could you describe um, what you're smelling just on the nose before we taste it? Ooh, oh, do I want to say red fruit? It's very, yes. very distinctive. Oh, I've got it. Have I got it? Yeah. It's red fruit. It's definitely red fruit. And also the aromatics. I'm getting something floral here. Yes, definitely. I'm getting something, you get something sort of, you know, I'm no expert on flowers and stuff, but um, 
I'm getting something slightly violety and slightly rose rose petally. Rose petally is there. I want to say pansy, but that's because it's a funny word. It smells of the old flower bed. This wine. I, right now, you said flower bed then, and mm. that's exactly what I was thinking was a mixture. Like we've got these lovely flower pots outside. When you bung your nose in there, there's no particular flower dominating. Yeah, it's a lovely floral. It's a floral really thing. Nice. It's a generic floral thing. Oh, well done. This this is really nice, actually. Lovely smell. I haven't sipped it yet. I suppose I should. No, no, no let's, let's go for it. Let's sip together. Remember, got your spittoon on. Mm. And uh, remember to spit. No, no, no spluttering this week, please. No, I actually swallowed. It tastes like it smells, which is not surprising. It's nice and it's not heavy. It feels like a, a wine you could have outside in the sun. Maybe I'm just thinking of Greece and mm. it's an auto-suggestion. But it, it, it feels like that he has that vibe to it rather than sort of a heavy dinner wine that you'd have with red meat spot on all uh, and it's lovely i mean the wine society say it's oh, medium bodied really like I, I think it's almost a bit less than medium bodied it is quite light it hasn't got that sort of weight in the mouth that the gigondas had um last time absolutely not no and i can find that slightly somnolent is there um, is there some kind of herb going on? Well, let's just rattle through it. Just to summarise, you've said it's kind of pale. Do you say it's pale ruby colour? Uh, yes, that's right. I want to say, uh, you know, your classic red. It's dry. How's the old um, dribbleometer? Dribbleometer. I was just. I thought you were going to say, how's the? Um, how long does it last? I can't remember what the word is for that. Uh, and I was going to have an answer for that. We'll do that in a minute. We'll do that in a minute. Bit of saliva, not too much. It's sort of not quite really high acidity, but it's on the way there. It's sort of medium, medium, medium plus acidity. It's thirteen percent alcohol, which is slap bang in the middle of the alcohol range for for, for dry wines. Before we get to the finish, I want to ask you about tannins. Are you getting any coating on your tongue and oh your teeth? God. Right. I will be gutted. If I get this wrong, but I am. Good. I am getting it and I had never experienced it before. Not really until now. You've asked me about it before and I was a bit vague, but I am absolutely getting it. It's almost like a tightness in my mouth. Could I describe it that way? Yeah, because it's a texture. Tannin's not a, a flavour. Tannin is a texture. Take another sip, all, and you don't need to drink it. Remember, you've got your spittoon. And really, yeah, yeah, yeah. really, really, really rinse it around your teeth and your gums. Wow, that... I can really, really feel it on my gums, but it's lovely because it's it, it's a texture. It's, it's it's a characteristic of the wine, along with the red fruit, the herbs. It's definitely things like red cherries, red plum. I'd say dried herbs. Really, really lovely, and really lovely tannins. Quite high levels of tannins, but they're not great big thick tannins that are blasting you. They're kind of rather fine. I know this is a bit geeky, but um, and I've done diplomas and wine exams and stuff but they've got a lovely sort of fineness to the tannins it's part of the character of the wine and what about the finish hole have another sip and tell me how long the fruit and the herby flavors last once you've spat it out ages they're, they're lasting a long time and i'm getting it's, it's almost like mm, it's almost like the subtle flavors are being stripped away and i'm left with that initial taste slash smell that i first got hit with which i like it seems to go on for it seems to go on for quite a while. It's still there, actually. It's still there from my last glug. And my last glug gave me a tannin. What's the word? A tannin kit. I like the way you said tannin is a texture. It's like the second verse of Rhythm is a Dancer uh, for <laughs> wine buffs. No, I get it. There's something happening in my mouth, which is not a, it's not a taste. It's a, it's a feeling, which is um, it's not unpleasant. It's just a thing. Again, this is another reason why tasting wine and getting to understand wine is interesting because it's not just about what it looks like, what it tastes like. It's about what it smells like. It's about it, the, the weight of it in your mouth. And if it's a red wine, what 
character do these tannins have you know and and if, of course if the wine is out of balance and the, and the tannins are too high mm, not good going back to what we were saying a tiny bit about aging if wines have very aggressive tannins when they're very young then they should soften over sort of two three five years the only problem is if you haven't got the fruit concentration at the beginning by the time the tannins have softened the fruit's gone and then you end up with yeah, a bit yeah, of a dull yeah, yeah. old wine it was the greek so sort of fourth century bc that sort of time who took wine and it became part in a very dem- democratic way because democracy is a greek word isn't it but yeah. wine became part of everyday life i don't think they were big drinkers certainly it was all the wine culture was part of the food culture and and philosophy and art and it's all part of that greek civilization thing the main issues were there were no bottles wine was basically stored in in clay pots these amphorae that i've mentioned and also ollie the big problem and this applies to romans and any early winemaking they couldn't put stoppers on the wine so this is a huge huge issue so if you can't protect wine from oxygen it's going to turn to vinegar it's one of those small things <laughs> that you don't really think about of course you can put stoppers in wines. why couldn't you use a cork stopper oh we hadn't we hadn't thought of that it's a little bit like um N- napoleon's army's problems in the russian winter when they had the wrong isotope of tin on their uniforms and mm. the tin crumbled in the temperatures and you'd have thought not having buttons would be just a sort of peripheral issue but of course when you can't do your jacket up it, and it it's minus 40 that's theory. a bit of yeah. a problem <laughs> it sort of feels like one of those things just this tiny thing crumbling yeah. tin versus not having cork so no concept of aging it's funny i want to go back to something you said about the philosophy the culture the way of living and stuff and the fact that alcohol i mean you let i mean let's not sidestep the point that alcohol you know can um, change your perception it can give you a high it can make you drunk if you drink too much is that do you think is your theory part of it that that lovely warm feeling you get from the from the first glass of wine maybe maybe even the second obviously we're not advocating getting any further than that you get that lovely warm feeling and your mind is relaxed and is that part do you think or do do you do we fancy that you know the greek society was a gentle democratic philosophical society and that sort of added to it that that, that that feeling of well-being you get from the alcohol in wine i think you've you've just said it all i mean let's let's not be you know coy about this clearly people human beings quickly realized what, what alcohol could do what wine what what wine could do and we've all know what it's like when you have too much wine it can make you feel really awful and that's obviously not what we're advocating but clearly a sense of well-being from moderate wine consumption absolutely and as i said as far as we can tell the greeks just saw it in, in a way that um you know perhaps the italians or the french do today they see sort of moderate wine consumption as just part of their daily lives you know a glass of wine possibly two max with their evening meal is, is what it's all about and if it means they're more relaxed or they're more convivial it can bring friends together it can promote discussion open people up for to talk about politics and art and all those other cultural aspects yeah wine's absolutely part of that it's a little bit of a catalyst i suppose getting getting things going yeah what i found in it, as i've matured is that you know alcohol is almost like a blessing uh, if used obviously really with care and in moderation uh, and, and obviously you don't use it every night or whatever but it can be just such a it's a lovely thing to share with your wife or um, your kids if they're old enough your friends and friends opening a bottle of wine and having a chat and just relaxing it's a lovely lovely thing i sometimes think that the our italian friends our french friends our spanish friends our greek friends maybe have sort of got this slightly better than we have uh, in their cultures maybe we're catching up but if you're producing billions of <laughs> bottles of the stuff which almost the french italians and spanish are it's just part of your culture and you grow up with it yeah yeah 
That's right. So, um, well, that was delicious. I'm really surprised by that Greek wine. Tell you what I'd like to have with this Greek... I'd like to have a pizza with this wine. Wouldn't it be delicious yeah. with olives and kind of cheese? Oh, and Oh, it'd be yes. so good with anchovies, a nice acidity. Maybe. Anchovies. It would be wonderful. That'd oh, be... mushrooms, yeah. Mushrooms, oh, yeah. goodness, yes. I can just see it. Um, very good. You can put that, put that suggestion in my mind. I was almost thinking of a meaty fish, and I thought that was going to be slightly iconoclastic, given it would be a red wine. A red wine so. with fish. But hey, mm. I'm up for that, and particularly because this has a light feel to it, and the acidity is lovely. But I think it'd be brilliant at cutting through cheese, um, you know, sliced meats, that sort of thing. Really delicious. I think the main thing, just to to, to move things on, to maybe a couple of centuries, is just to, is obviously to, to mention the Roman Empire, which sort of sort of subsumed the Greek Empire. So we're sort of you know talking sort of. Uh, first century BC, right up to sort of, well, whenever it dissolved, someone's going to correct me now, but it's sort of fourth, fifth century AD. This was the huge, huge growth because obviously the Romans did lots of things. They did lots of countries, built roads and dams and waterways and, and civilized huge parts of Europe. It's a magnificent summary. Romans did things. They did things. Yeah, that's it. That's, yeah. How, that's how qualified I am. Romans did things. <laughs> no, but it's absolutely accurate. 100%. They did, but they did so much because they invaded so much. They conquered so much. If you look at the places now, today, 21st century, in Europe, where most of the wine and famous wine regions are, places like obviously southern France, uh, Italy, obviously, parts of Spain, uh, even up into Germany. So places like where the Mosul, where we're going later on with our white wine, and the Rheingau, the, the Rhine River, huge kind of concentration of vineyards there for many many centuries because the romans were there two thousand years ago so the legacy of what the romans were doing in terms of carving uh, new passages invading and, and laying down vineyards uh, and, and to make wine exists today so basically the european wine map is not hugely dissimilar to how it would have been when the romans got going two thousand years ago and of course the 3050 has been immovable since the earth was formed and of course a lot of uh, a lot of their um uh, doing stuff was in the 3050 stripe eh, i suppose absolutely mm. right the other factor here is of course is that transporting wine was such a nightmare that um, often you'll find vineyards close to rivers it meant that grapes uh, could be transported along rivers and that's why the river rhine in germany was so important and we'll come to that a bit later on yeah distribution we'll, we'll do that so that's what the romans have ever done for us which it turn, turns out is quite a lot and then we we go to the miserable dark ages which we i was assume we're just loved to be just about crap and people waiting around for something to happen you know yes there was a bit of a pause for about 600 years yeah. <laughs> it's just funny i have looked at some history books not just oz clark's book and again it's this kind of this void of you know, not what went on after the fall of the Roman Empire until the medieval times, you know, it was 11, 1200. So really the wine story has to be picked up again around that time. The only thing to say is that people who would have kept wine going in some form during those 600 years or whatever it is of dark ages was, of course, the good old church. You know, wine became, again, a cultural significance, religious significance, because of the, the Eucharist, because of the sacrament. The sacrament you know, of, yes, exactly, the, 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 blood, the, blood, the blood of Christ in communion, exactly. During the dark ages, the only people keeping the wine thing on the road were probably the Benedictine monks followed later on in 11 1200s by the Cistercian order who were a bit more sort of 
severe, a bit more serious, because apparently the Benedictines like their wine a bit too much. In Burgundy, where we were last week, when you had your map out and we were looking at the Côte d'Or, that beautiful central bit of Burgundy in central eastern France, it was the monks who realised that if they planted their vines and grew their grapes in certain places, some did better than others. And if the vines and the grapes were facing south, southeast, southwest, were protected from the north and the prevailing westerly winds, and they were mid-slope, where the drainage of the soil was quite good, not at the top where they could be blown away by the winds, or on the flat land below, they got the best results. What do you reckon, Or? Well, I think that might well be the first concept, or be people first understanding the concept of terroir. Terroir. You got it, mate. And of course, you're an expert on terroir after last week's ep. Yep. Soil aspect. There is a vineyard today called Clos Vougeot. It's a walled vineyard. That's what the Clos means. It's 50 hectares. It's huge. On the Côte d'Or for for red wine, for black grapes, i.e. Pinot Noir. And that's a Grand Cru vineyard that was first mapped out by the monks about 800 years ago. What's next, Ol, on, on the chronology? I know you've been mapping out a chronology for this ep. Well, we're in the 15th, 16th century, um, and then there's uh, a mention of something that happened, or sorry, something that still exists from 1540, which sounds like it's something um, that happened with our Teutonic brethren in, in, and Visigoths and Ostrogoths. The fact that there seems to be a, in a museum um, a Riesling from 1540, which is showing very strong evidence of um, of winemaking in Germany around that time. Riesling, oh, not Riesling. Um, oh, God, I've done it again. That's so right. that's the Spanish, the French and the Germans. Yeah, no, you, no, you're getting the full set, mate. It's going to be a full house. <laughs> have inappropriate pronunciation. The 1540 thing is just it's just a nice little thing to mention. There is one bottle left of a wine, a Riesling. There's a bottle in someone's cellar in some castle in sort of Würzburg, which is Bavaria sort of area, that has not been opened, but it was made in 1540 and is still in existence. There was another bottle of this wine that was consumed as recently ago as 1960. This famous guy, Hugh Johnson, a wine writer, he was lucky enough to taste it. And he said, literally, for a few seconds, it was amazing. It tasted sort of of Madeira and figgy and complex and a bit sweet. And then the thing just almost evaporated. It sort of disappeared like some kind of strange elixir just because the wine was so old. The contact with the air and the oxygen suddenly went and they're gone. So he just got a tiny kind of glimpse of it before it died. When you think there is a bottle of wine that was made in 1540, sitting in someone's cellar in Germany, 1540, Henry VIII. I'll have the 1540 Riesling, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Henry VIII was, okay. you know, still around and, you know, 100 years before Johann Sebastian Bach and all that stuff. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that is incredible. Well, I think, oh, we should have a little peep at our Riesling. Yeah, let's do it. Now, I need to uh, declare here, Rich, that... When I grew up, um, and again, this is part of the snobbery and inverted snobbery and misappropriated snobbery that comes with wine drinking, which is so tedious. But um, sweet wine was sort of almost considered something that um, people like us didn't drink. You know, we were always about dry white wine. And that was, I don't know, is it more sophisticated or something like that? I got that vibe when I was young and I never was exposed to sweet white wine. I've since been exposed to dessert wine, which I um, really like, but I would never choose actively a sweet white wine because of all those prejudices I hold on from my Yorkshire childhood in the 1970s. Well, it's interesting, Oh, and obviously trends and tastes change all the time. If we were in the mid-19th century, and Queen Victoria was on the throne, we would 
be absolutely all be drinking sweet German wine. Do you remember it was called Hock? Oh, yeah. That was the fashion at the time because some of the best wines made were, were, were sweet. But then what happened, particularly during the 20th century is that particularly after world war ii germany was all had to rebuild our, our, after after world war ii some very very poor wine was produced that was kind of off dry medium sweet lacking in any concentration remember liebfraumilch liebfraumilch yeah when the it's a ch at the end is a sh that's it liebfraumilch <laughs> and things like that gave yeah. germany a very very bad rep so it was kind of easy and the same with eastern europe under the communist era actually it was very easy to produce semi-sweet, really pretty awful wine. So sweet wines rep took a real nosedive. Whereas actually, you know, sweet wines, as, you, as you've already said, can be magnificent. You know, things like Sauterne from Bordeaux or Tokai from Hungary. And, oh, some wonderful sweet wines made in so many different ways and so many different styles. Let's just look at our sweet wine hero. This is our second wine tonight. It's a 2019 Riesling from the Moselle from a producer called Dr. Lucen. There are a lot of doctors in Germany producing wine for some reason. They must be onto something. And um, you probably get a doctorate in winemaking. I mean, you can get a doctorate in almost anything in Germany. That's why you have, you know, hair doctor, doctor, people with two doctorates. That's they right. They stick them together, don't they? They do. They do. They do. They do. And I mean, first of all, I'm, you know, well, we've both got the bottle. It's the lovely classic thin sort of long fluted bottle, isn't it, that you associate yeah, exactly with, that. with German wine. Riesling is, is a white variety. And the hallmark characteristic of Riesling is is its high acidity. Why do you think the acidity is high in Riesling or in Germany? Is it anything to do with latitude? Mm. Good boy, you have been listening. Oh, I have been listening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, of, of course it is. Alcohol, alcohol 8.5, goodness me. Low alcohol. And the reason it's low is because the Moselle is so f- f- chilly. I mean, over you know, just touch over 50 degrees north. If this wine was a dry wine, they would let the yeast consume all the sugar and you'd end up with maybe a 12% dry wine. But the acidity Uh would be really intense. Got it. What you do and what they do traditionally in the Moselle, where the acidity is high because of the cool climate, not always, they do make dry wines, is that they're on the way to making a dry wine. And then they stop the fermentation. They may literally remove the yeast so the yeast can't carry on eating the sugar. Right. So the wine has to stop its fermentation halfway through. What do you end up with? You end up with some alcohol that the yeast has converted some of the sugar to alcohol, but not all of the sugar to alcohol. And with the yeast filtered out, you're then left with what's called residual sugar in the wine. And that's what we've got here. Oh, right. So I'm sure it's not as simple as this, but uh, yeah, because it's sweet, the sugar's remained and hasn't been eaten by the yeast to make alcohol so why would we be surprised that it's low alcohol there's something else i'd like to point out on the label on the back dr lucen's label mm. very german it's got a it's got like a table almost like a spreadsheet i love it <laughs> and it says style fruity aromatic and then it says terroir cool climate slate soil and then it says food pairing modern european cuisine sushi fish white meats and then social awareness uh, lightweight bottle and uh, eco step wine. Don't know what that means. Certified winery. So it's got a, a, quite a lot of information about the wine on yeah. the back of the bottle, which I really quite like. I like the way that the French like to obscure it a little bit to make it all a little bit more uh, difficult to understand. But Dr. Lucen bungs it all on the back of the label to tell you exactly what you're getting. Really? I'm taste it now. Tell me the colour, all then we'll do the nose, then we'll do the palate. So it's pale yellow, it's very lemony, and it smells very, very different from the wine 
I smelt last week. I could tell those two apart instantly if I had them both in the same, in two different glasses, very close to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And what are you smelling? Mm, not much. I'll do the swirl. Oh, I'm getting more now. It's almost like I can smell the slate, the slaty soil. The doctor, the good doctor has told me about it. You do get amazing slate there in the Moselle. You get very steep vineyards overlooking the river there. Steep's good because you get more sun ripening the grapes at that quite northerly latitude Got and, these, and yeah. these slaty soils yeah they're good they're good for drainage and they will give a little bit of minerality yeah there's minerality in the smell it's sort of fresh it's nice it is it's nice it's it's not complicated is it to me it smells like quite concentrated lemon to me sort of yep. lemon and sort of you know sort of yeah sort of lemon curdy and stones i'm almost thinking sort of tangerine but maybe i'm oh that's no, right yeah oh those um what were they called? Those oranges used to get in cans in syrup. Delicious mm. treat. Give it a taste. Wow, that's sweet. That's definitely sweet. Now, can I handle it? As I've been so ill-educated in sweet wine, it's not like the stickiness you get with the dessert wine. It is a sweet wine, which I'm having trouble enjoying because of my prejudice, I think. But the taste behind the sugar is really rather lovely and subtle. I should look beyond the sugar or indeed enjoy the sugar, maybe, uh, to the subtle taste. And it, it does taste not very alcoholic as well, which is quite nice. Quite pleasant. Are you aware of the high acidity in this wine? Or? It feels like it's harder to tell. Because the sugar, the sweetness is kind of balancing out the high acidity. Yeah. Most sweet wines, and especially the ones you mentioned, the really sticky ones, like Sauterne or uh, other sweet wines, they have to have high acidity. Otherwise, you, you, your mouth would just be clawing. You wouldn't even be able to drink them. It'd be very tiring to drink. This is clean as a whistle, this wine. Yes, there's certainly quite a bit of what what's, what's called in the trade residual sugar as a result of the winemaking I was telling you earlier about them removing the yeast halfway through, leaving some sweetness in the wine. But if you have another set, sure, there's sweetness there, but it's clean as a whistle. Leaves your mouth very easy. Doesn't You don't get coated yeah. in sweetness. No, it's not sickly. It's nice, actually. It's really lovely. I, I think I could get used to this. I love its lightness. I hadn't really realised that <laughs> sweet and acid are not, sweet and acidity are not opposites of each other. Sweet and dry are opposites of each other. Correct. Acidity can come in on a different axis, if you like. Yes, acidity, uh, acidity is all on its own, um, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas, whereas whereas, dryness and sweetness are two ends, polar opposites of one particular scale. Then you've got things like body, and then you've got alcohol and all these tannins, if it's a red wine, all these variables interacting. I've tasted low-alcohol wines before, and they are um, universally dreadful, but because you feel like you're, what's the point? And also, you know, part part of the enjoyment of it is the taste of the alcohol. But this doesn't feel like I'm being shortchanged in the um, in the alcohol department. It feels alcoholic and it feels uh, complete, if you like, as a wine drinking experience. I'm still struggling with the sweetness okay. because I'm not used to it. Because I enjoy dessert wines, I'm starting to appreciate it. And the flavours are lovely. They really are. What would you imagine eating with this whole? Or would you just have it by itself? Dr. Lawson. What do you suggest? Uh, yeah, sushi. Oh, sushi, yes. I yes, that would be great. Yes. Oh, lovely sushi would be awesome with this wine. Lovely, yes. So the umami kind of from the sushi with the high acidity cutting through th- th- that as well. But but, but the, a little bit of obviously the sweetness here in the wine. I think that would go really, really well, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm getting, the aftertaste as well is really quite pleasing now. It's like I can tell the sweetness in my mouth is still there, and so are the taste. It's 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 quite it's nice, really nice actually. It's like when you have a dessert, <laughs> when you have a pudding, as we'd say up north. The sweetness is lovely, isn't it? You like it, <laughs> and and the sweetness stays on your tongue and in your mouth after you've eaten it. It feels like that. It feels like I've just had a bit of pudding, and I'm still getting a nice a nice aftertaste from it. I'm being won round by this wine. I think every mouthful, 
um, and I must get rid of a couple of them. Every mouthful is, is I'm enjoying it more. What's next, Ol? Where, where have we got to? We're in the 16th century, aren't we? We're in the 16th century, 15th, 16th um, uh, century, and we're starting to uh, overcome the problem you had before, we talked about before, about wines not being easy to transport and therefore it being rather a local thing, to it starting to become, I suppose, a trade thing, a something you could make money in, you, you, could, you could actually make into a business. The uh, England, Holland, Portugal trade routes to Britain. Let's take... Bordeaux, for example, by the sort of 16th, 17th century, Bordeaux was very much getting on the map. And, and, and obviously people were making money out of wine and they realised they could make money if they, if they could trade it. And of course, the reason Bordeaux was chosen by the Romans all those years ago was because just north of Bordeaux, that, that Gironde estuary where the river Dordogne meets the river Garonne, it's just this huge natural kind of harbour, which was just fabulous for, for boats to sail off to places so for trade for trade to take place. So no brainer. Got to remember, of course, England was at war with France a lot of the time and Spain as well a lot of the time. So we were not getting much wine uh, from those countries. But actually our trade route with Portugal was really interesting. We've always had a good relationship with Portugal and that meant that things like port as as a commodity and as a trading wine just became phenomenally successful. It has been for hundreds of years, still is. When it came to things like France, Scotland, who got on well with the French, Mm -hmm. even though the English didn't get on so well with the French. There was a superb uh, export of good old claret, going back to our favourite claret, from Bordeaux to Scottish ports, but not to English ports. So that was that was kind of um, just because of the politics of, of, of the day. I said, did whiskey go the other way as well? Presumably, I'm sure it did. Just to mention a couple of other really important things as we skip through the centuries and, and come to the present day. In the 17th century, two really important things happened. Glass and corks. Let's take glass first. And actually, this is what the, the English were really, really good at, was making very tough glass. And this is really important around the time of um, Dom Perignon, another monk. It's always the monks, isn't it? He was the guy who, you know, obviously got champagne on the road um, <laughs> with, with the sparkling wine. But the problem was, because of the sparkling going on inside the bottle, that creates pressure. And the French glass was a bit too feeble and used to break. Ah, so, so it was the strong English glass as a result of our kind of coal mining in places like the Seven Valley in Newcastle that actually meant that glass could be blown at much higher temperatures and was much stronger. So although we couldn't make wine or champagne or anything like that, we could damn well make some tough glass. <laughs> That's uh, so British. We make someone to put it in. Absolutely right. So that was an important development, as was the kind of emergence of cork, because although cork oak trees have been around forever, it was only around the 17th century when people realised if they cut cork, and its spongy bark on the cork tree, they could squeeze it into the top of a bottle where it would naturally expand because it's so spongy. And as a result, it would be watertight and airtight. And that totally began to revolutionise what was possible because, of course, the main problem was that you couldn't transport wine because wine would go off so quickly. There are also uh, things that took us back as well. So you're going to tell me about someone who I thought was a bloke called Philoxera, but he's not a bloke. It's uh, something rather disastrous that happened in the late 19th century. Oh, yeah, Phil. We've got to, we, we must. We have to talk about Phil. Philoxera, it was absolutely catastrophic at the time, although probably, like a lot of bad things, led to some good things afterwards. Philoxera is a little tiny bug. It's called an aphid. It attacks the roots of vines. The weird thing was, it doesn't attack the roots of... American vines, because American vines are different to European vines. Someone was interested to know what American vines were like, so they just very innocently um, brought some over from the New World to Europe. 
not realising the, the phylloxera aphids were sitting on the roots and they started munching the European vines, which were made slightly differently and basically a bit like it was it was a bit like the co it was the COVID pandemic of the wine world of the late nineteenth oh, century. Awful. Absolutely decimated the industry. Very few places in the world got away phylloxera free. Only Chile and a part of Australia got away with it, which meant that yeah, this thriving sort of late nineteenth century um, culture that had grown and grown and grown with all the great houses of Bordeaux and all the great um, merchants and the money and the volume and the uh, trappings of wine and culture was being decimated because of a tiny little bug that you could hardly see. This led to uh, all sorts of scratching of heads, major global symposium, not helped by other minor things going on like, you know, World War One and stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, so this was a really, really difficult time. And as a result, the solution was that the roots of the American vine species, which were immune to the phylloxera aphid, were cultivated and grafted onto all European vines. No. That's unbelievable. Bit of a job doing that. A few million vines. <laughs> what should we do for the next 10 years? Let's just graft some vines. It'll be okay because in 20 years, we might be able to afford to eat. Yeah. The Daily Mail would call them Frankenstein grapes. Are they the ones that proliferate around Europe now? Yeah, absolutely. So the vines, so, so, yeah, so, so most of the vines now, I mean, phylloxera still exists. You still get outbreaks of it from time to time. It's a bit like having the old COVID vaccine all as long as you've got the american rootstock uh, ah. which the aphids can't attack and it's then you know m melded to a european vine further up as in grafted that's the correct term isn't it grafted <laughs> then you're okay so you can have your european vines producing their lovely different uh, varieties like chardonnay pinot noir cabernet and all the things that we love that they come from the european version of the vine good old american rootstocks at their feet protecting the vine from phylloxera. That's extraordinary. And all oh, the other important thing, this is the kind of good thing, if you like, about phylloxera, if there, is a, if there is a good moral to this tale, is because phylloxera was so devastating and people took such a hit financially, economically, it meant that once phylloxera had gone away or, but this, or that a solution had been found, it led some ver people very, very keen to make a quick buck. And there were all sorts of naughty, fraudulent wines being produced, things being passed off, saying they were one thing, but they weren't. And but people were doing this for survival purposes as well as, you know, not just to be fraudulent, but even so, unintended consequences. But the point was, there was no regulation of, uh, of what was going on. And this led to our favourite friend, Appellation Controlée, which emerged Excellent. in the 1930s, which basically said, we are going to have to regulate these vines. We're going to have to look at these vines. We're going to tell you the areas where these vines can be grown. And when you make wine from these vines we need to taste it and examine it and check that it does what it says on the tin it's not about a measure of quality it's about a measure of authenticity saying where it came from is you know that, that it's that's come from an authentic source that was Appalachian Controle that happened in the 1930s that was a kind of rebound from the devastation of phylloxera. We've got to f fast forward, Rich. There's been so much material you've been you've, you've uncovered. Uh, we, we've got to fast forward quickly to the last 50 years, basically our lifetime, because there are some quite unexpected things that were still going on when we were nippers. Absolutely true. I think the most important thing, that, and it started happening in the 1960s, that has revolutionised modern winemaking, is hygiene in the winery 
and the availability of temperature control in the winery because fermentation is such a if it's not controlled it's such a a heated exchange literally chemical process if you don't control the temperature during fermentation you get some really funny odors and flavors stinky wines as recently ago as probably the 1990s 80s 90s you could be down in the south of france you didn't need to go and look at a map to find out where the winery was you could smell it it was just <laughs> it was just such a messy business but it was the germans uh, actually perhaps no surprise with their ability to organize and plus they had to rebuild their country after World War II they really got hygiene and temperature control inside the wineries going in the 60s and that has led to the revolution now where today most wines even if they're not particularly interesting wines they will be clean they will be of acceptable quality there won't be any hygiene problems the kind of standards if you like the health and safety stuff it sounds boring it's actually incredibly important it's not that long ago that people would be saying oh the wine's corked you know, because the cork technology wasn't very good and you'd get a problem, some chemical reaction. And of course, increasingly, people are using screw caps now. On wines like our Riesling today, I was amazed to see that our Riesling's got a screw cap. It's fan- yeah, fantastic. It and the evidence is, in case anyone's wondering, screw caps are at least as good as corked. We don't need corks. Lovely though it is to withdraw a cork and hit a pop. Screw caps are great. And certainly from this millennium onwards, obviously started by the by the New World producers, and we're going to talk more New World in next week's EPA, or we'll go much more into New World and what that and the culture there. The screw caps have been a mainstay since the beginning of this millennium, certainly from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and it is increasing. Very stupid question. Screw caps have been available since before this millennia. What happened to make them acceptable slash as good as cork? People did trials, basically. <laughs> came, right. up, came up with some evidence. Uh, and um, I love pulling a cork, but sometimes, hey, great. Can't find my corkscrew. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's a screw cap. That's right. I feel exactly the same way. With my lovely new corkscrew, I very much enjoyed opening the Gina Mavro, but also incredibly convenient to um, uh, unscrew the uh, the wine from our German friends. Rich, um, this has been uh, more than a canter through the history of wine from, well, I think you said 8,000 years ago, and has been wonderful. I've learned a lot, as always. And two really delicious wines. I just had a sip whilst you were talking of the uh, Riesling. Do you know what? It's really growing on me. I'm going to have a glass... Um, um, tomorrow with my wife i think she might she might like it what's happening next week we're going to have a look at the new world i mean the new world is almost a bit of an old concept now because as we will discuss we're going to be looking at the new world versus the old world do we still need to look at it in those terms we're going to focus on a, a bit on um australia particularly that we haven't really covered yet at all and we're going to be tasting dear listeners get your wines out the details will be on the website we're going to be tasting the wine society's uh, shiraz We're going to be comparing that with the Wine Society's French Syrah. By the way, Syrah and Shiraz, same same thing. We're also throwing an Australian white wine in. Again, Wine Society, the Hermit Crab. And it's made from a producer, uh, by a producer called Darenberg. And it's a Viognier Marsan blend. And that's our white wine. So three wines next week. I'll, I'll see you then, dear boy. Sounds good, Rich. Thank you. My God, my head is full. Uh, I'm just going to have one last sip. Um, of the Riesling and enjoy it very much and I bid you farewell have a wonderful evening thank you again <laughs>